0: do you think cats dream
1: <laughs> you say
0: dream yeah do cats dream
1: i mean i i hope so
0: well my cat's just been sitting in the closet asleep and making a lot of noises in her sleep so i just thought about that um just wanted to ask you, what to see your you thoughts were. yeah well thank hey. you for asking um is this recording yeah anyway oh my goodness we're, we're back we're, we're back with another exciting installment of the book of colossians um last week we got snowed in uh i, I got snowed to my house um had to walk to the store in the snow to get food for the week it's pretty depressing times but the snow looked nice um uh yeah. how was how the snow how was the snow for you daniel over in uh tennessee
1: it was gorgeous um I didn't stand finger because I didn't have you know just in case power went out or anything like that. I didn't have a heater that would you know like keep me alive. So if the power went out, I would probably die in my house and no one would find me for a few weeks. So I went to campus and stayed with Caleb um, for a while in his dorm and um, stayed till about Friday and then I went back home and it was a lot better. Um, but I mean it looked. Extremely beautiful on campus. I um, freed Hardiman and got to have fun with all my friends. And Monday we got out of class, but the rest of the time we were on Zooms, so still got to be educated.
0: That's cool. All right. Yeah. So um, we are in Colossians chapter two. It feels like we it feels like it's been an eternity since we've done one of, done done one of these episodes. It's only just yeah. been like two weeks. Um, we're in chapter two. Uh, eight through ten—is that correct?
1: It is indeed.
0: Cool beans. Cool beans. All right. Um, go ahead. Let's let's hear let's hear what you have for verses eight through ten in in chapter two.
1: All right. Well, you know, it it has been a while um, since we talked about the book of Colossians, and you know, it might feel like an eternity. Mostly because I mean, we're talking about words that will help fulfill our lives for eternity. And so this, this part of the book, is just so beautiful. Um, I mean, not only does he refute the errors of those at Colossae, but he's also showing us one of the most beautiful truths found in this book, and that is that Christ is the one that completes us. And I hope that I can adequ- adequately expose and express the all-sufficiency of Christ uh, that Paul intended to do in his message to those at Colossae. Uh, but he talks about, you know, the emptiness of philosophy, and then he talks about um, the fullness of Christ and his deity, but then he talks about how Jesus is the one that fulfills us as our authority, and he is the only one um, that is able to accomplish this. And so also edifying at the same time. But let's begin in verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all the overall rule and authority. So he says in verse eight, emptiness, uh, the emptiness of philosophy. Beware of these false teachers, because they will attempt to deceive you. They will attempt to steal the wisdom of God that you have received. You receive the truth through Christ, and we talked about that last time we were uh, speaking. We spoke about you know the true knowledge of Christ, because there's a battle that's going on at Colossae in the Lakeus Valley is you have the battle between the true wisdom and this elect wisdom. And so you have Gnosticism versus uh, the gospel, which is true, which is the correct knowledge. Is it the one that we've already attained beforehand, or is it this one that they're trying to indoctrinate my fellow friends and family members? Well, he talks about, you know, the, these are the kind of doctrines of the world, and he speaks of them very directly. He says they are merely philosophy, empty deceit. They're traditions of men. They're basic principles of the world, and they are worst of all, in all accordance. This is what these things are. They are not according to Christ. And so from the very front, I want to say if it's not about Christ, if it is not concerning Christ, if, it, if it's not according to his doctrine, I don't want any part of it. I don't want to listen to it. I don't want to speak about it. All I want to focus on is what does Christ have to say? What is true? Because if it's not according to Christ, it's a lie. It's something that was fabricated by men. And it is vain. I don't want it. So he tells them, take heed, see to it, beware. At this time, he's warning them to look out, to listen, to pay attention. All right, this is an immediate issue. Don't ignore this message. There are forces that will deceive you. You you will lose everything and be corrupted by the dangerous lies of the heresy. See, we have a lot to lose. And people want to take that away from us. Don't allow them to. One commentator says he warns them that they must not let anyone pervert them from the faith in Christ by their human reasonings and theories that are vain and deceptive see, Jesus is the solid foundation that you have built your faith on. Don't allow anything to take that away from you. They'll attempt to deceive and to persuade you, but don't you move. Continue doing what you have been doing. Be aware and be ready that you may not be led astray. And he speaks about anyone, about any man, about no one. Don't allow them to do this to you. Beware of all of these people, all of these false teachers. False teachers are contaminators of the truth, and they are therefore followers of the devil. They are our enemies because they are enemies of God and the truth. And we stand for the truth. We stand for the gospel. We stand for Christ. But there are those that are false teachers throughout Scripture. You know, you have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees. You have the Gnostics. You have the philosophers. You have what John speaks about, about the Antichrist. You know, it's not something about premillennialism, about the end times. No, this is a false teacher who says Christ didn't exist. All right, these are all false teachers. Don't listen to these people. Jesus warns about these kind of people. He talks about in Matthew seven fifteen, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. What that means is, is, they appear to be normal; they appear to be just like you, and yet they will kill you when they seek, when they have the opportunity. And then he says in Matthew sixteen six, "Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees." In Romans sixteen seventeen, Paul's urging uh, the Romans. Now I urge you, brethren, no. Those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. So he, he shows what kind of things they do. All right, it's something that's contrary to the gospel, but then he also tells us what we need to do stand firm in what we have and avoid them. Don't fellowship with them, they're false teachers. And you can continue looking at a lot of these verses, but I'll, I'll note one more. Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things of the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And you can look at Hebrews thirteen nine. You can look at 2 John 1, 8. And all of these verses, it talks about these false teachers. And they will steal your, steal your reward. They will take everything from you. They will remove you of your hope of eternal life and your relationship with God. Don't allow them to do that to you. Because false teachers, all they want to do is they want to cause harm to your faith. And they do it through deceitful words that diminish Christ and they cause division to the church. They create lies in order to lead people away from the truth and distract them from the reward. I know what you might be thinking, you know, like a lot of these guys, they might be very sincere in what they're thinking. But they too might be led astray by those who are seeking gain, whether it be profane for money. You know, there are people that you would you would expect, you know, they're supposed to be talking about the Bible, and they're referring to the Bible a lot, so they should be speaking to the truth. I trust this guy, but you know what? He might be lying to my face about doctrinal matters, about matters of life itself and reality, and he may not even be speaking the doctrine of Christ, and so I have to evaluate what does the Bible say and weigh it to what the words of this guy is saying. Now, that person has the duty to speak the truth. I have that same duty to speak the truth. That's why I've spent a lot of time studying the books of the Bible so I can accurately speak about both the Old and the New Testament because this is a very important role. When I'm talking about the Bible, I want to talk about it in its correct context that I can Accurately speak its truth. And sometimes people will take that for granted. They either overuse it and they use it for their own gain, or they don't spend enough time with it. And so they're either led astray or they lead others astray because of their lack of study. But there are those that do this. And so what we have to do, whether they are sincere, whether they are intentional, I need to combat all false teachers. I need to continue in the faith. I need to remember the gospel of truth that I have received. I need to depend on God and trust the words of Christ. And so Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6:20, he says, Guard what was committed to your trust. And he tells him exactly what he needs to do in 2 Timothy 4:2. He says, Here's the whole matter of the entire thing that you have to do to speak the truth. Preach the word and nothing but the word. Because when you're speaking about the Bible, you won't lead people astray. You'll show them exactly what God has intended for them to hear, to take heed of, to accept that it may change and convert their lives. That's what you have to do, is preach the word and nothing else. But these men, they weren't speaking the word. They were speaking lies. They were trying to spoil. They were trying to captivate. They were trying to cheat people with persuasive words, and they would deceive them. They would steal the valuable treasures that they had obtained and desired to preserve the knowledge of Christ. Today, false teachers, they attempt to steal that same treasure that we've obtained in Christ. Will we allow them to cheat us and freely hand them our valuables? Is our faith strong enough to hold on to and defend our treasures? If we are weak, we are without defense to combat the forces of heresies. Then we will be pillaged and plundered, left with nothing. This spoils every individual. It cheats us of completion. It ruins every soul and distracts us from genuine truth, and it leads us as mankind, away from the eternal life, into everlasting damnation. Focusing specifically on philosophy. And this word is used, in, I believe, in every translation. To the Gnostics, this word was devoted to the pursuit of wisdom. Because philosophy is a love of wisdom. And I think we should all have a love for wisdom. We should all have a philosophy, and we all do have one we should love wisdom. As Aristotle said, he said, all humans by nature, we desire to know. And So even the Greeks and the philosophers were people that had a noble cause of being lovers of wisdom. Now, sometimes they took it too far. Like Paul talks about in Corinthians, he has a context of where people would just kind of go and they would listen to really good speeches. But Paul's like, hey, I'm not trying to speak really fancy words and be an oracle leader. You know, don't just listen to me just to listen to a lecture and to gain knowledge. Let this convert you. Allow it to convict your heart. And so that's the entire cause. But this is a wisdom that's not like what we study in school about, you know, maybe philosophy or maybe it's about science or math or whatever it might be. You know, that's not the kind of wisdom we're talking about. Those things might help us. Understand and maybe lead us to God with a pattern or whatever it might be. But this wisdom is spiritual. Wisdom is given by God and it's beneficial to all recipients. And so wisdom is good when it is not weak. And this wisdom of Gnosticism, it is so weak. It has no foundation in which to stand upon. It falls apart and crumbles into ashes. And so we'll notice that a little later when we get. Um, towards the ending of this chapter after this study. But this philosophy was not a pearl of genuine wisdom, but it was a vain speculation. It was human philosophy and deductions of human reasoning. And they were empty words in comparison to the words of Christ that complete us. What was found within it was an absence of spiritual knowledge. And the foundation of this philosophy um, was built on fallacies and false ideologies. As Robert R. Taylor writes, he says, false teachers did not bring true philosophy or heavenly wisdom. They brought fatal philosophy. So the philosophy we're talking about, it's not something that's helpful and beneficial. And I affirm philosophy is very beneficial in a lot of ways. Um, I take a contemporary concerns class that kind of focuses more on, you know, not the logic aspects of philosophy, Um, the same teachers teaches on that, but it's more on the ethical side of it, you know, being able to evaluate our reality with these philosophical truths and how do I combat, you know, what's moral and what's immoral, where do I stand? And so that's a lot of that. That's what a lot of that class is. And I have that class tomorrow, but um, it's really interesting. You know, I, I need stuff like that. I need philosophy to be able to evaluate Why do I believe the way I believe? And philosophy has a lot of tools that help me be able to evaluate that. But I don't put that on a stepping block above the Bible because that's man's philosophies. That's man's wisdom, and that is very um, confined. It's not not as omniscient as God is because he is an all-knowing being. He knows everything. What do we know we know what's in front of us we know what we can see and what we have heard we know by our experiences and what other people's experiences are we know by other people's knowledge and wisdom but we don't know it all we have a lot of questions and we don't have all the answers but god does and so he is the true source of wisdom but i want us to evaluate this you know there will forever be an issue when there is an elevation of worldly wisdom that's over godly wisdom, which is found in Christ. And that was the issue that happened in Colossae with all of this Gnosticism. They relied on this inferior wisdom that was found in the world rather than the superior knowledge of the omniscient deity. And so their philosophy it was contrary to Christ, and their philosophy, it was only based on human reasoning rather than the divine revelation. Um, man's wisdom is limited but God's is unlimited I can truthfully affirm that because Paul affirms it on multiple occasions in Romans 1 21 through 22 and 1 Corinthians one nineteen through 20 should look to him as the source and seek his wisdom rather than man's wisdom rather than my own. um and he speaks of these vain deceit this, these empty uh, words it's hollow and deceptive um these are words of trickery, their guile and their fraud that mislead people from the truth and this is in connection with the philosophy and it describes the content found within it deception Vain to see of human experience from other, whether it be society or history or worldly experiences and wisdom. They are mere fallacy, the misleading intellectual speculation, their values, they're built on false but appealing human reasoning. Alright, they sound really good, but they're devoid of truth, their inner power, their hope, and their spiritual life. And so that's the emptiness of this philosophy. And not only that. but it's according to human tradition. It's the traditions of men. And these traditions uh, is that which has been handed down, such as a teaching and a practice. And there's a lot of good teachings and traditions that happen. There's a lot of bad ones as well. All right. We have that issue with the Pharisees where they bind tradition. Um, and I mean, we could talk a lot about tradition, but I don't want to get lost in that. I want to spend more time on that next time when we talk about the Jewish legalism, or we go too far on tradition. And this is one instance of that. Um, The so-called philosophy, it was man-made. It was a human scheme. God had no part to do it. It was originated entirely by men and is handed along from man to man. And So these traditions, they're not from God. They're not his teachings. They're not a part of his doctrine. And so there is therefore no spiritual merit nor even substance. The commandments are God-given. They're required according to his will. On the other side, you have traditions. They're man-made schemes. They're of human design and desire. And so I should seek God's will rather than man's will that we've made and fabricated. In chapter 2 and verse 22, we'll talk about this later, but the traditions of the Colossians was this. It was twofold. There's Grecian philosophy and Jewish opinions. And so that is the danger of traditions is that they will corrupt the gospel of Christ. You'll put it in front of the Bible, and it will become a stepping stone, a stumbling block. It'll keep you from this because it's a barrier to your faith, to your understanding of truth. But they are rudiments of the world, and so what, a, what I have found in my study is that this means you know, it's elementary and fundamental lessons of the world. Um, They're an overwhelming concept of what is of the world. It's concerned with the ways and the things of the world, and it's concerned with all the material things of the earth and the doctrines of mankind. Um, And he speaks of the world, and so within that, we see a contrast between the physical and the spiritual. So it's not the things that are below, but it's the things that are above. It's not the physical things, but it's the spiritual things. And that's what he talks about in the next chapter, He's saying, seek the things above, because that's where Christ is. Don't go to where the things of the earth are, because Christ dwells in heaven. Seek those things, because you're sojourners of the earth, and your inheritance is in the dwelling place of God. But all of this, this worldly things. it's leaving Christianity for Gnosticism. It's leaving the superior learning that you've already obtained for this inferior information. It's moving from the highest academic level to an elementary level. So don't leave the greater knowledge for a lesser knowledge. That's what Paul's emphasizing in this verse. But he speaks of one of the most saddest things that can be commented on any teaching. It's not according to Christ. I would hope that my preaching would not be given such a description be misleading in any sort of way, because my hope is that I would teach the truth. And so my goal is to help people to understand the Bible more and to help them in their lives to apply what the author intended, because as that inspired writer gives his message, I want to relay the same message in the context and the confinements of scripture. And furthermore, I want to talk about what God wants me to talk about because I have no right. I have no authority to speak out, out of bounds or out of line in any sort of way ever when it comes to the Bible. All I want to talk about is what does God want for us to know. And that's all I have time for to do is to talk about what God wants us to talk about. Anything other than Jesus, something other than his teachings, nothing short of his wisdom is something that doesn't originate with Christ, and it's of no benefit for any believer. All things that are not from Christ, they don't have the divine authority to be presented as principles, as practices or proclamations of God, because they were creations of mankind alone without his sanction of inspiration. Christ is the truth. Everything outside of Christ, it's a lie. Don't be led astray, please. These things, they won't lead you to Jesus. They're not of Christ. They'll lead you further away from him. And so here, we'll notice a little later, but I mean, there's five reasons, the doctrines of Gnosticism. It's a fatal deficiency. This is by one commentator in the biblical illustrator, and he gives us five points. He says, it's merely tradition and therefore of precarious truth. It is human and therefore deficient in authority. It is elementary belonging to the outworn creed, to the rudiments of religion and therefore unfitted for Christian manhood. It is material. It's not connected with the soul's true home and center, but with the uh, palpable and external and is therefore deficient in spirituality. And then last, it's not after Christ. So the things that The Gnostics tried to supply through philosophy. It was incapable of completing them. That's what we desire. We desire completion. We want to be filled. But that's not what I find in worldly philosophy. I know that was a lot, but that brings us to verse 9. And in verse 9, we have a beautiful truth of the fullness of Christ's divine essence. In Christ dwells and lives all the fullness of the Godhead or his divine essence bodily. And he speaks of in him. And so where is this fullness found? Well, it's not found in the angels above, it's not found in the Gnostics below, it's not found in Ad, in, in Father Adam or in Father Abraham and the great servant Moses. It's not found in the fathers, the prophets, the preachers, the, the apostles. And so if not in them. Than who? It's found in the Son of God. The Son of God is the one with the Father. He spoke in John ten thirty. He said, "I am my Father our one." And he spoke in his prayer at Gethsemane in John seventeen twenty one that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. Now, this is the first time that's ever mentioned in the Godhead. Um, And it's really beautiful. You have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit. And so you have this one being of three persons. That's the Trinity, the divine Trinity. And Christ is among them. He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Godhead. And what dwells, what lives, this is his eternal and essential characteristic. The fullness that dwells in him, as it did in the past, and it will continue to do so in an ongoing action. And so this continues. To dwell and it remains forevermore. So here's Paul's declaration: it's Christ's fullness, it's dwelling, and this is now a refutation to these false teachers. When they're talking about Jesus, they speak of him as a spirit or an aeon, and they come up, uh, they come upon him at uh, as that little thing I think we talked about earlier. If not, I, I apologize, but. Um, you know, they believe that Jesus was one who was separate from Christ and that at, at his birth, you know, he was just Jesus. But then at his baptism, the second person that Godhead, Christ, came into Jesus. And upon his death, you know, he gave up the ghost. And so Christ left his body and Jesus is the one that died. And so that was their entire thing. But that's not what I hear. What well, we find out, is in one manner, you know, throughout this entire epistle, we notice that Paul instinctively chose to say Jesus Christ. That is Jesus, the one who is the son of man, whose name means God is my salvation. And then you have Christ, the meaning of Messiah. This is the chosen one, the son of God. And so you have both the Son of Man and the Son of God, it's the same person. He is both human and deity at the same time. And it's refuting all those errors. And it's showing that God, that he is God, that he is deity. And that the same essence that's found in the Father and the Holy Spirit, it's found in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Of course it is. It's it's easy to understand. Um and he's trying to help them understand that concept. Why would we reject human teachings, though? Well, it's because they're out of Christ and we're left incomplete, yes. But it's because of this. Because in Christ, we are filled. But is he adequate enough to fill us? I want to be able to answer that. And the way we do that is we look at Matthew 16, 18. And we found out exactly who Jesus is in this text. So in Matthew 16, the context of this is, you know, Jesus before his disciples, and speaking to his disciples, and he asks, you know, who do people say that I am? Who do they say that the Son of Man is? And they give answers. They say, Well, you're John the Baptist. Uh, or any of the others, you're Elijah, you're Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And it's really funny because um, just a few hours ago, I was in New Testament criticism, and my teacher, Doug Burleson, brought up how, you know, in this text, it's really funny how all of these guys are very different from one another. You know, you have Elijah, and I mean, he's, just, he's known for a certain way. John the Baptist, he's known for an even different way. Jeremiah is known for a completely opposite way. All of these guys, they're very different and distinct from one another, and yet that's what they're saying this person is. But then they they have Peter who comes forward, and Jesus asks, you know, who do you guys say that I am? Peter says, well, you're the son of God. You are the Christ. You know what Jesus says? On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades I'm not overpower it. But within this verse, we see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is adequate. He is the only answer for completion because of who He is. He is, as we have already studied previously in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 14, He's our Redeemer. In verse 15, He's the image of God. In verse 15 again. He's the firstborn over all creation. In verses 15 through 16, he's the creator. In verse 17, he's the sustainer. And he's also the eternal being. Then in verse 16 and 18, he is our authority. And then finally, you look in uh, verses 19, 19 through 20, he's the reconciler. And so what we find within this text right here right now is Jesus is the one that completes the christian and god made the fullness dwell in christ he speaks of the godhead so this is the divinity of christ it's the divine nature of jesus and his nature declares the glory the majesty and the power of the godhead as you look in romans 1 20 and so here paul is affirming far more than the d- divine qualities that are revealed in christ but that Christ is the very essence of God. He is the same as God because he is God. And so the true nature of Christ is the fundamental premise of which every Christian can rest assured of their spiritual needs that are being supplied by Christ. And he says it's bodily, bodily form. Uh, other translations say uh, Jesus embodies all that God is. The reality of deity it is seen in Christ Um. The, the word, as we notice in John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and of truth. The word was in the form of deity. And he came and walked among us on this earth in the human form to live among us and then later to die just like us but for a greater purpose. It was for our sins. And then, of course, he rose from the dead, thus emphasizing even more his divinity. But Jesus is that very evidence of God. He is the greatest display of divinity that we have. At no time have we ever seen God, and yet we've seen Christ. And he expresses the true essence and the nature of God. And when you look in uh, the book of Hebrews, it speaks about him being you know, the brightness of his glory and him being the image of God, you know, all those things, they describe that in a manner that shows, you know, this is what God is like. This is his nature, and it's all exemplified in the life of Christ. And so Jesus is worthy of all honor, of all respect, of all praise, of all worship, of all service, because he is this. He is the most superior and supreme being that has ever lived and will forever live, because he is the divinity in human form. He is our God. So now we go into verse 10, and this is where uh, we get to have a lot of fun and make a great application to this beautiful message. First, I need to take a sip of Dr. Pepper. Um, In verse 10... Christians are complete, and they are filled in Christ. Why? He's the authority. He's the head of all principality and power. And so within Christ, we are complete. And so complete, it means lacking no part, finished through. And like many today, the Gnostics, they affirm that they are sufficient without Christ. But Paul perfectly refutes this false proposition from their worldly philosophy. The Gnostics doubted the supremacy of Christ because they did not believe in the sufficiency of Christ. And so, in him is the essential position in Christ that is a relationship that will complete us spiritually. You know, I was once in a state of incompletion out of Christ, but now I am filled. Without Christ, I'm desperately in need of him because I'm empty my life is vain. But why Jesus? Why him? Again, why not Adam? Why not Abraham, Moses, or Joshua, or David, or any of the prophets? Why is Christ singled out? What makes him so special? It's because of his identity. It's because of who he is. He's the Son of God. He is our Savior. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, and he is the only way. You know, John 14, 6, says it so beautifully. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one is able to have a relationship with the Father except through me. In this life and the next, he's the way to the Father. He's the way to salvation. He is the way to purpose. He is the only way to heaven. If he is the way, he is the only one that can complete us. If he is the only source, then he is the only solution. And therefore there is completion in Christ because he is the only true source of deity, and we are made full by his fullness in John 1.16. So Christians have made complete and continue to be made complete in Christ because Jesus can complete the Christian for he embodies the fullness of God's essence as deity. So we can't be complete uh, in Christ if we don't recognize and realize that we need Christ. So why is God essential? And do I even need Jesus? Is he necessary? And I affirm yes. But are there things that are necessities in life to begin with? You know, uh, I have to recognize that reality. And of course, I would affirm, you know, I need water, I need food, I need all these things in order to survive. So I'm not speaking about Are there any desires in life? I'm talking about the things that allow me to survive. And we're not talking about just survival of the physical things of this life. We're talking about the great spiritual things that will allow us to live forever. The things that bring about our spiritual survival. But I have to recognize, first, am I even self-sufficient on my own? And am I even in need? of such completion? Can I not be complete without Christ in general? Well, do I require something because it's essential or very important for my own survival out of necessity? And I mean, I wonder, do I not require any outside help to satisfy my basic needs of life? I believe that the statement of self-sufficiency, it would imply that I'm independent and can fulfill all needs without being dependent on anyone or anything. And so this claim would follow that I I did not depend on my outside source other than myself for survival or prosperity or even happiness. And yet that's a big lie. I needed someone in order to exist, so that was necessary. But not only that, we recuperate uh, – I guess I'm saying that word right – recuperate off of others to where we're able to uh, have accessibility to other things that allow us to survive. Um, and so we need others. You know, I'm not going to be happy if I'm by myself. That brings about depression. And so there are necessities in life, and I'm not self-sufficient on my own in those aspects. But looking at humanity in general, is humanity independent? Did we ever even need God? Well, I think we're independent in our decisions. Decisions and our choices. We have free will, and there might be some that deny that, but that's okay. I mean, it's pretty plain and simple. We have free will. Um, Everything's not determined for us. And so I affirm that we're independent in some ways, but we're not independent in our survival because I'm not free from outside control, nor am I a being that doesn't rely on another's authority And so human beings, we're dependent on one another. So that eliminates the possibility of claiming we don't need any other forces for life. And just because I depend on others, am I not independent? Does that mean that I need God? Well, not only am I not self-sufficient because I cannot supply my own basic needs independently, but I need Christ because he is the only answer. He's the only solution. He is the only supplier of whom I am dependent upon. Within Christ, am I all sufficient? Is Christ enough? Is he the one that I need? I'll give you three answers to that. One is existence. The second is morality. The third is purpose. And we spent a lot of time on uh, a few of those last time in a video that we did um, with a uh, I guess we were talking about the purpose of life on our Friday podcast, but if you want to watch that, we can, you can listen to more in-depth conversation about this, but to give an overlap.
0: Really, they would just listen to it, and I'll watch it. We don't have a video for it.
1: All right, so speaking about this, we speak of existence, can we exist without Christ? Well, no. We need Christ because he is our creator, and we wouldn't exa- exist without him, and we need him because he's the only solution to life. So every individual already depends on Christ the moment they exist because they were created. So I need Christ for existence, but then I need him for morality. But that determines, is there a standard? Well, I would affirm, and, and we got a lot more in depth in our last uh, in a video about this, about the meaning of life. And we talked about morality, but, you know, there is an absolute standard. To morality. And God is that answer. But if there is no standard from God, who's to say that your values are greater or lesser than mine? And how can we determine what is just and what is unjust, what is moral, what is immoral, what's right and what's wrong? Well, without God, we can't define that. Morality is weighed by God's essence. God's goodness is towards God's nature, and evil is against God's nature. So good and evil. They don't exist in the absence of God. But Jesus sets the standard of morality in this life, and we are to follow in his footsteps by imitating his life. So you get that. He has shown us the correct way to live, he has shown us a way to be acceptable to the Lord. He has shown us morality the correct way. So follow his way. And then there's purpose. Mankind says there's no purpose, it might be meaningless. Or there's all these other vain ways of living, maybe for happiness. But the biblical truth of purpose is this. to live for God. Fear God and keep his commandments. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. We just had a, um, a lectureship about that at Freed Hardeman um, a few weeks ago. And what a great purpose that is in life. It's to recognize, you know, like, hey, I can live, but I'm also going to die. You know, that's kind of the whole book. It's very grim and solemn, you know, but it's it's so true. You know, you can enjoy life and it's fullness, but you'll never be satisfied without God in your life because that's the whole purpose. That's the conclusion of the matter of life. It's to live for God. And even Paul talks about that purpose in chapter one, verse 10. He says it's to walk worthy of the Lord. That's a purpose. It's living for the glory of God. It's preparing our lives for eternity. And so I need God because I've always needed him and I'll forever need him. He is the grand designer, the absolute being, the necessary being, the first cause, the unmovable mover, the almighty God. And in Christ, there is completion and wisdom and redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation and life and death and peace and self-sustainment. He brings us meaning in our relationships. And so Paul said that Christ was his entirety. He supplied life without him. is removable of life itself. For to mean to live is Christ and to die is gain. Every spiritual need is supplied and fulfilled in the fullness of Christ. And everyone is affected by Jesus, and we need him in order to be complete. Because he supplies our every need, not just our desires. All right, a child desires a cookie and ice cream for dinner, but needs a healthy meal. But God, he fulfills our needs. You know, there might be evil in this world, but there's salvation. I might seek that evil out. I might seek sin out. That might be my desires, but what I need are those spiritual gems. What I need is a relationship with God. Am I complete in Christ? It's a hard question to answer. Jesus shows shows us what a life of completion looks like. He speaks in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, and you read about the blessed, uh, or the Beatitudes, that is. And you hear that word blessed over and over and over again, and you see the description. It's kind of like, you know, um, what we have in America as our... Um, I guess our Declaration of Independence or maybe our, um, you know, our laws and statutes in this land, you know, it's kind of like that, the amendments, where this is what America looks like. This is the description of the citizens who live here, and that's kind of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. This is what a citizen of the kingdom of God looks like, and he says there are people who are poor in spirit, in verse 3. And then he says there are people who mourn and are going to be comforted. There are people who are gentle and inherit the earth. They are people who hunger and thirst for, for uh, righteousness, and they're satisfied. They are merciful, and they receive mercy. They're pure in heart, and they see God. They are peacemakers, and they are called sons of God. And they might be persecuted for righteousness' sake, but theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So they have a reward in heaven that's awaiting them. That's completion in Christ. That's what it looks like. And then he speaks about the purpose of life and saying in verses 14 through 16, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men. Don't allow them to darken it. Don't allow it to be hidden away, but allow it to be like a city set on a hill, it can't be hidden. It's for all to be seen. You are an impact and an influence to this world, and you can change it for the better. That's your purpose. That brings about completion. Not only that, as we already talked about, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and He is the true foundation that every Christian and faith, uh, every Christian, Christian's faith is built upon. As you can read in First Corinthians three eleven. Um, and there's so much that I could talk about, but, you know, completion in Christ is, it's beautiful. His life completes us because we have an example. His cross completes us because we have salvation. His resurrection it completes us because he lives and we have a hope. How is he more than enough to complete us, though? Christ addresses our past sins in chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. He forgives them. He secures our future standing, verse 22. And he encourages our present situation, verse 23. But how can Christ complete every individual in every circumstance, whether easy or whether difficult? Well, when troubles arise, when you're facing trials, when you're trying your best to carry on and fall short, when there's this hole that's in your soul that cries out to be filled, what will you do? How can we be cured and made complete? It's because Christ is the answer. But how? How is he the one that does this? How can I apply this to my specific situations? And so I spoke to a friend about this, trying to figure that out. I loved his answer. He said, it's not your circumstances, but it's your focus. You see, Solomon, he had everything he could ever desire and focused on the things of the world. And he neglected the most important thing in life. He needed God. Job had, Job had, I said Job. Job had everything he could ever desire and focused on the most important things in life, even when he lost all of the things of the world. Which are you going to be? Solomon or Go? Now I get it. That's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? The rich young ruler. He had everything going for him. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. He had everything he could ever desire, but his heart, his motives, they were incomplete. They were incorrect. And when he discovered what he needed, he didn't follow. And he was lacking Christ. But then you have the centurion what a great guy that was. He had everything he could ever desire and he devoted his life to Christ once he discovered what he needed. If we are completing Christ, we're empty without him. How are we incomplete out of Christ? Philosophy doesn't have all the answers. Philosophy lacks any substance of truth. Philosophy is inferior and insufficient. Philosophy, it's not complete. It doesn't supply purpose and it will not save. But Paul talks about what it's like to not be in Christ. He says in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, he says you are without Christ, you are aliens, you have no hope, and without God in the world, you're afar far off. You're not even near the blood of Christ where there's redemption, where there's a family, where there is hope, and you need Christ. And thankfully in that same chapter, he shows us a life in Christ and it's the greatest life you could ever live. And that's the life that I built. A life that is complete. I was once alienated. I was an enemy of God because of my wicked works. But Colossians 121, I'm reconciled. I'm brought closer to him. Life is empty. It's meaningless. It's hopeless without Christ. The alienated life it's incomplete without Christ. But within Christ, he is the one that fills your life. Do we fall short of completion? Do we ever feel incomplete because we know we've not been living our lives where Christ is first? Where he's the most important being in my life. He's my priority. He is the most supreme God, and I've put him on that pedestal. What happens when I fall short? Do you ever feel empty? Do you ever feel broken? Or what about weak? Do you feel pain where you're hurting? In those moments, I recognize I need Christ. To make me full. To make me complete. And when I am without Christ, I know that I am incomplete and feel empty on the inside. And there's a void within me that desires to be filled. I'm broken and I desire to be repaired. And I'm weak and require strengthening. I'm in pain and I need to be filled. And so without Christ, I will remain in a state of where I'm incapable of ever being filled. And yet... With Christ, my needs will be supplied and be made full. You are complete in Christ. Don't look anywhere else. Only look to Jesus. Are we not complete in Christ? Why are we going anywhere else? What's lacking in Christ? That philosophy answers. When Christ is not supreme in our lives, Christ remains buried in the tomb and dead to us. Knowing to acknowledge that Christ is all that we need and all that we desire, that He will be alive in our lives, to being complete in Christ is to say, all I need is Jesus, all I need is Christ, and I have to recognize He is the authority. So that's bringing us towards the ending of this. He is the great authority. They diminish the identity and the position of Jesus Christ at that time, as the Creator, as the Sustainer, as the ruler of the universe, and the deity. But yet Paul is affirming here he has all control. He has all supremacy as the head above all means of authority throughout all the universe, whether it be principalities, whether it be the, uh, those of the earth, whether it be powers of heaven. Jesus rules and he reigns as the king. And the Colossians should not be swayed by the doctrines and authorities that oppose Christ, but continue to rely and serve their savior. And so I'll leave with this. I am complete with Christ and empty without him. Don't ever forget that. If you leave with something, leave with that. I'm only complete in Christ and without him, I'm empty. And that's why I need him. That's why I want him and desire for him. I never want to be without him because all I want is Jesus because I depend upon him. Life is insufficient when he is absent in my life, because I have not made him the most important thing in my life. And so to recognize the supremacy of Christ, that he is all that I want, we must realize the all-sufficiency of Christ, that he is all that I have and will ever need.
0: Is Christ your life? first what translation do you use um pretty much every
1: translation i can get my hands on
0: um, okay well there was a you, you you the i liked the uh translation used for john 14:6 uh i am the way the truth and the life no man is going to have a relationship with the father except through okay, that me. was that was daniel that uh, was more of me <laughs> oh that was you oh <laughs> I thought that was a no. translation you were reading. I was like, that's actually really good. I like that translation. That's a, I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, I, I, I like that. I mean, we can't have a relationship with, with the Father except through Jesus Christ. And uh, I, I know in my past, I've heard people, you know, when when talking about Christianity and, and their personal relationship with God, well, their personal relationship with God that they were describing is, is apart from Christ and apart from his word. And uh so yeah but never mind okay so that wasn't actually a translation no, okay that was a that was
1: that was a div okay
0: all right well um International. i i uh i love verse nine and i after actually after hearing you talk about this i, I have a greater appreciation for uh verse nine and ten combined and you are complete in him. Um, I just think about some people in, in the past who, who may have, you know, gone, who, who may have had, had depression, um, who, who may have gotten so depressed and they, that they took their life because they felt there was a hole in their, in their life, that there was a hole in their life. Their life was incomplete and they didn't know what, they could possibly do with their life. They they didn't have anything to live for. And I just think, well, it's obvious what they needed. They needed Jesus. They they needed Jesus to fill that hole in their life. Um and as you know verse 10 says you're you're complete in Jesus. Um yeah. I I I love those two verses. And I think you paired it very well uh with verse eight as well because some of these people were trying to fill uh there these holes in their lives or or trying 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 to uh, uh substitute christ with these other things like philosophy and and uh the traditions of men and all these other things they're trying to fill that in their lives rather than having christ in their lives i think you did very well in pairing that all together uh awesome Th- thank you i appreciate it um we will not have an episode up this Friday. Uh, Daniel is going to be gone and busy and all that. And so we're not going to be having an episode this Friday, but we'll be back on Monday with another, um, continuation of our studying Colossians. Um, if you haven't already go over to our Facebook page and, and, uh, leave a like and yeah, that'd be cool. Um, you know rate us if you can uh yeah all right that's all i got to say daniel oh your mic is oh okay your mic's out never mind i'm not going to talk to you all right uh we'll see y'all next time